Uh, I do have friendships with some of the students and some of the staff here over the years, and uh, so it's a great privilege for for uh, myself to have the opportunity to share a little bit of what uh, God has been doing in our life, and uh, more importantly, uh, in the Muslim world, as we've been able to, to minister among Muslims. Uh, for me personally, uh, over the course of a couple years, that's not very much experience, and so uh, I don't come to you having all the answers. In fact, uh, after uh, being in India for a year with a young family, I think we came out of that year with more questions than we had going. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's with great humility uh, and appreciation that, that I'm able to share. My family was going to join me this morning, and uh, we are fighting sickness through our boys. So uh, instead, I have a picture of my family. This is my uh, beautiful wife, Brianna, and uh, our three sons. Judah is our oldest, and Graham is uh, a year and a half, and we just welcomed Render into the world here a couple months ago. And, uh, and so they wish that they could be here with you. Uh, my wife is a Minnesota girl. We met when uh, I was going to school out in St. Paul, Minnesota, Bible school, and uh, we were both dating different people at the time, and so there wasn't that immediate attraction to one another, uh, but God would have it that uh, her sister would marry my best friend. That would keep us in touch, and then a few years later, God brought us together. Um, a little bit about myself. I, I'm originally from here. Well, I'm, I was born in Canada, but we consider Montana our home. I uh, grew up in Manhattan and graduated from Manhattan High School. And um, Dry Creek Bible Church, as, as Josh shared, is, is our home sending church. And uh, so we've been members there for a long time. Uh, I was on staff with Dry Creek uh, for a number of years, leading us uh, up to the point where God uh, led us to head overseas. And I was able to kind of be transitioning out right about the time that Pastor Jim was transitioning in. And so I was able to see that go through, which really, really encouraged my heart. Um, have friends here. Uh, Ryan Ward was actually my youth pastor for a couple years when I was in high school. And so those are just some of the connections that we have. M the last one I have that is that my parents actually met when Montana Bible College was MIB in Lewistown, Montana. And so uh, Montana Bible College has always kind of been a part of our life, even though we've, I, I've kind of been removed in many different ways until this morning. And so uh, it's a great privilege, again, to be here this morning to share with you. Where we're going in just the short time that we have is I'd like to try to kind of blend in three different things, a little bit of our testimony and my testimony of God leading us into the Muslim world, um, maybe a little bit about Muslims and if I can uh, share or maybe uh, educate you on some things that you don't know, and then a, an encouragement for you as students that are uh, asking the Lord what is next after you receive training and education. And, and so if I can do those things, those three things faithfully this morning, I, I hope that it's going to be a good time and an encouraging time. And I'm going to be available afterwards. And so uh, if you have any questions, I'd love to connect with you. Um, why Muslims? That's certainly a question that we've been asked. And at times we've even asked ourselves that. Um, and the numbers when you look at Muslim populations in the world today are just daunting. Um, Right now, as it stands, there's 1.6 billion Muslims living in the world. That's almost reaching a quarter of the world's population. And the daunting statistics surrounding Muslim populations is that 86% of this 1.6 billion in number really do not know Jesus. Jesus has, they have never come in contact with a Christian to be able to present the gospel in a meaningful 
and understanding way. And, and so what has happened is there are many unengaged Muslim people groups in the world today. And by unengaged, I mean that uh, this unique ethno-linguistic Muslim people group um, is completely unengaged. And by that, I mean that there is no known followers of Jesus living among them. As far as research shows, Christians that are on the ground, uh, different organizations kind of collaborating, uh, research and manpower, there is no known followers of Jesus among this people group, and therefore there is no church. So there's no witness. And so uh, the organization that we've joined has uh, come up with um, over 100 Muslim people groups that are over 100,000 in number that are completely unengaged. And so there, uh, we have joined the efforts of sending workers into those areas of the world, which, as you might assume, are not the most comfortable places to live in the world. They tend to be the, the, the remote um, places and the challenging and difficult places to live. Uh, unreached people groups are people groups that have less than 2% that are evangelical. So uh, there's a difference between unengaged people groups and, and unreached people groups. And so we're really trying to focus on sharing the gospel uh, and seeing disciples making disciples among the unengaged Muslim people groups of the world today. 9-11 has forever affected our view of Muslims. I remember when the towers hit and I was just watching the TV on September 11th and, and watching those, those visions and those pictures and, and what happened. And that has forever affected our view of how we view Muslims and the emotions that we may feel when we see a Muslim. Uh, I hadn't taken, I was in Bible school my first year uh, in college at Northwestern College in St. Paul. Uh, I hadn't taken world religions yet. I knew about the religion of Islam, but I couldn't tell you anything more than that. Uh, I couldn't tell you what a follower of Islam was called, which is a Muslim, by the way, or Muhammad, who is the prophet of Islam. And so pre-9-11, that's where a lot of people were at, but that's not the case anymore. And instead, we, we also carry all these different things with us. We have certain stereotypes of Muslims, and it goes both ways. You know, uh, it's interesting in conversation to hear Muslims talk about the West and the U.S. and how they consider the U.S. by and far a Christian nation and what they see coming out of Hollywood, that represents Christians to them. And so I'm able to kind of take a stand and be able to say, no, those really are not followers of Jesus and what you see in the media does not accurately represent the states. Uh, in the same way, we carry stereotypes of Muslims. We tend to think that they're all trying to kill us. And what we see in the media has had a profound effect on the way that we view and feel. If you were to ask Kyle, I think Kyle would probably have different emotions uh, when, when, uh, when he thinks about Muslims because he served in the military uh, in, in that part of the world. Um, Seeing a Muslim usually creates uh, emotion, and, and I, I think oftentimes we kind of feel either uncomfortable or fearful, uh, maybe intimidated by what's going on. And as we look in the media, and I watch stuff on, on Fox News, I think what, what ends up happening is, is it reinforces this fear. And uh, I want to encourage you to be careful with where your fear lies this morning, because uh, it shouldn't be in regards to what you're seeing uh, in the media and what you're seeing, the, the atrocities that are happening among ISIS and uh, different groups. We in the ch 
we the church here in the West tend to be more fearful of Muslims, and uh, there's, there's not a big difference between the church in India. They're just as fearful of Muslims and reaching their own people within their own city. God led us to the seventh largest city in India, which is uh, seven million people in size. So it's been a kind of a, a, a little bit of a difference for us leaving Montana with less than a million and living in a city where we all live on top of one another to cram in seven million people into this city. But the church in India, by and far, is just as fearful as we are. And so we're trying to build relationships, seek out uh, people of peace among Muslims, and be able to gather um, bro brothers and sisters from the Indian church and take them into these Muslim communities where they are, they are scared and they are intimidated and they are fearful. After spending um, over a year living in Pakistan uh, back in 2006, I was able and had the privilege of living with 20 Muslim engineers and office workers and, and uh, uh, truck drivers and uh, cooks. And it was through that time that God really laid on me a burden and a love for these people. And I don't assume that all of you share that same desire. But for me, I remember having different conversations with my Muslim friends up in the mountains. We had set up base camps to accomplish the work that we were doing. Uh, it's really foot highways through the mountains of northern Pakistan. And, and so um, I remember sitting around the campfire and talking about Jesus and, and feeling at times very hopeless and very challenged by their understanding of who he was and how their theology within Islam brings in half-truths, that, that we have full full truth uh, within our scripture, but there's a lot of half-truth and there's a lot of misconceptions and, and uh, uh, confusion about who Jesus is. And so I remember coming out of that year just burdened, thinking, Lord, okay, I feel like you are leading me back into the Muslim world, and, and yet I, I, I need more training. I need more help in communicating the gospel. The promises of God have a great effect on us. It leads us in obedience. And so for us, that was our story. Uh, if Jesus were not who he said he was, then it wouldn't be worth leaving the comforts that we have here in the Gowton Valley and le uh, leading our family into the unknown discomforts of another world and another culture. But praise God that Jesus is who he says he is. You know, he is the light of the world. He is uh, the bread of life. He is the wellspring uh, of life. He is the door leading into salvation. He is the Lamb of God who was slain. He is the Son of God. And so if we didn't have these truths, along with all the other promises of God, it wouldn't lead us in obedience. And so I want to encourage you that those, those things are true, and God is faithful to those promises. And for us, it's been so encouraging to rely back on that. God has called us all to be a part of this amazing task and commission that he has given us, to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, but also teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded of us. And I want to encourage you this morning to take the truth of who Jesus is and understand that he is certainly worth giving up all that you have in order to follow him. Uh, the reasons to love Muslims are many, and so these are just a few that come to mind as I was preparing for this morning. Uh, one, it's easy to talk about Jesus to a point. 
uh, for a Muslim, a Muslim's faith is very, very important to them. And so uh, we kind of, I grew up in Manhattan, and, and it's kind of the Bible Belt here. We got, you know, church plants wanting to come to Bozeman uh, many each year, and whether they last or not, you know, um, we're, we'll, time will tell. But this is kind of a, a, a valley that many people have stepped into the church. They have different experiences, good or bad. And so what I have found is it's easier to talk about spiritual things in Jesus with Muslims than it is with our own neighbors in Manhattan. And so uh, because of this, because their faith is important to them, conversation naturally funnels towards what is most important to us. The second reason is that they are pretty blunt and to the point. And I'm finding that more and more refreshing uh, as I meet people that maybe are not so much that. Uh, usually the first two questions that I'm asked in India is, the first one is, are you Muslim? And there's my open door. There's my opportunity to say, actually, I'm not. I'm a follower of Jesus. And then they say, well, why are you here? And then I explain. I usually start with God's covenant to Abraham and, and make the connection with a prophet that they know by name and not really much more past that. Um, and, and say, God promised Abraham that through him, all the nations, all the families of the nations will be blessed. And so I want to be a part of that blessing. And so we're starting a, a business. And we've been able to see God's favor in starting a business this first year in the city that we live in. You, and after explaining these things, usually the walls come down. Uh, the third thing that stands out in my mind in relationship to Muslims is that they're highly relational. And I'm realizing more and more that I'm becoming more highly relational. And so it's a great bridge to be able to share Jesus in friendship and in relationship with a Muslim. I realized this after I had spent a year in Pakistan and, and we were, I was kind of getting ready and preparing to leave and we had, I had these friends that were coming up and through tears and sorrow and sobbing, they were saying goodbye to me. And I was feeling that in part, but I wasn't feeling it nearly as much as they were. They're highly relational. And uh, they can teach us a lot about, a, a, a lot about um, hospitality and a number of other things. The last reason is that God is moving in the Muslim world. Uh, a man by the name of David Garrison wrote a book recently called A Wind in the House of Islam. It's a great book. I encourage you to read it, especially if you're kind of drawn towards what, how God is drawing Muslims to Jesus within the 1040 window. Uh, he took four years, 100,000 miles, um, traveling back and forth and interviewing Muslim background believers that have come to Jesus and kind of collecting the data. And so you have these different houses of Islam throughout the 1040 window where, you know, God is working in uniquely different ways. In one area, it's dreams and visions. In another, uh, it's meeting missionaries. In another, uh, it's meeting someone who may be highly contextualized in the gospel. You know, God's using all these different ways of, of bringing Muslims to Jesus. But in the beginning of his book, he says this, and I, I want to read this because this is so, so doggone encouraging. It says this, and I quote, looking back over 14 centuries of Muslim Christian encounter, tens of millions of Christians have been assimilated into the Muslim religion, the house of Islam. During this time period, we can document only 82 Muslim movements to Christ. By movements, I'm referring to at least 1,000 baptisms over a two-decade period, or 100 church starts over a two-decade period. Now, here's what's remarkable about what's happening. Today, 69 of history's 82 movements have occurred in the past two decades alone. 
And so that's so, so encouraging for us that are ministering among Muslims because we're living in a time where more Muslims have come to Jesus in the past two decades than the previous 140 years of Muslim-Christian dialogue and relationship. God is moving in the Muslim world, and that is exciting to be a part of. When I think about a Muslim, I oftentimes have this vision of a Pharisee in Jesus' time. For a devout Muslim, they are devout in their religious duties. And so I'm, I'm always re reminded of this as I see Muslims going into the mosque to pray. A Muslim has kind of five pillars of, uh, that they cling to within Islam. And, when, and some of those are praying uh, five times a day, going on hajj or a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lifetime if they're able to afford it, um, giving. Uh, to people in need, and participating in Ramadan. And so Ramadan is, is a Muslim's most important month. It's their holy month. It's a month of fasting. Um, they abstain from sunup to sundown. They abstain from drinking and eating, uh, smoking and, and sex. Um, and it's really a month, what it comes down to, it's a month of trying within their own man-made efforts to gain favor in the eyes of Allah and, and, and so that he might look at their decisions, good and bad, through the rest of the year and essentially forgive the, the wrongs that they have committed. So it's a way of, like, prayers are worth, you know, double the amount that they, they would be worth no, normally during the, the rest of the year. And so there's all these interesting different thoughts within um, Ramadan that are important to a Muslim. And, and yet, in the back of my mind, I'm always reminded that I think Jesus has taught very clearly that he doesn't care about what is on the outside. He cares about what is on the inside. When a Muslim goes to pray at a mosque, he's required to actually clean the outside of his body. So you'll have pools of water. You'll have spouts where a Muslim can sit down, and he will wash his arms and his, his hands, the back of his neck and his face. He'll wash his mouth out with water and clean his, his dirty feet and his legs because... He believes that in order to come into the presence of Allah, that he needs to be clean on the outside. Muslims need to hear about Jesus, and more than just a prophet among the many leading up to the last prophet within Islam, which is Muhammad. You know, on Sunday mornings, we Christians like to, you know, we go to worship on Sundays, and what do you hear people talk about more than anything else? Is it not what we delight in? And we find joy in. You know, this time of year we can talk about, you know, if the rut's coming on, which I think it is. I think the rut is in full swing among elk. And so if you're bow hunting, you need to get out there. You hear other things, though, too. We like to talk about what our children are doing, our, our greatest joy and delight in what our children are accomplishing in academics or, or in sports. You know, it's how the high school team did Friday night uh, playing football. We talk about those things. And sometimes just maybe you might hear something about what God is teaching you or what Jesus did or how uh, some prayers were answered. But we naturally talk about the things that we delight in. And I, I think that that's okay. But what we see in Matthew 12, verse 34, is that uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Uh, and he says this, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, be, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Jesus teaches us a lot about the difference between duty and delight. 
And I think what this world needs even more so is now is people that are confident and bold in what they believe in, and it speaks from within them an urgency and a confidence and assurance of what they believe in where it's genuine. And people can, you know, Muslims are no different than anyone else where, where we kind of, you know, you can kind of sniff out what, what is accurate and what is true, what is coming from a position of being genuine and what isn't. You know, we can, we can kind of sift through that usually. And you guys can recall, you know, when someone talks about something, you can say, yeah, that person is very, very passionate about what they believe in. It's obvious. They're speaking about the greatest treasure. One of my favorite parables to share with a Muslim early on in conversation with them comes out of the parable uh, in Matthew 13 of the hidden treasure. And Jesus says this in his describing of the, the kingdom of, of heaven. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. And then out of joy he goes and sells all that he has in order to purchase that field. And so my point in bringing that up is, is so that a Muslim can see, okay, it's not, it's not just the dutiful things that are important, but, but there's a heart issue that needs to happen. And I want that Muslim to see the joy that I have in sharing about Jesus, that this is the kingdom of Jesus, and he is worth giving up all that we have in order to follow him. I want to ask you this morning, if the good news is good enough, Is Jesus your greatest treasure? And because of this, there is an urgency. There's an urgency to share the gospel with your family members that are not walking with the Lord or have never heard the gospel presented to them, your coworkers that do not know Jesus. And there is an urgency for Muslims and other people groups around the world today to hear this gospel because apart from hearing this life-saving message, they are dying separated from God eternally. I think when the gospel comes out of a place of treasure and joy, that's obvious and that's contagious and people are, are attracted to that. Is the kingdom of heaven worth giving up all that you have in order to receive it? You see, this broken world needs the hope of Jesus. And God has equipped us to accomplish this task of going to all nations and again, making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And in this world where fear seems to be controlling, you know, our actions and controlling the way that we think and maybe preventing us from being obedient, um, the hope of Jesus needs to go forward. I uh, want to share a story that I will never forget from my uh, year serving in Pakistan. We had these two brothers uh, that were locals, and we had hired them to help us with reaching the, the mountainous villages. And uh, so we had this huge river that uh, divided uh, this, this, uh, this valley. And, uh, and to, in order to cross, it was too deep to cross or swim across. And so there was cable cars at different places where you could hop in a cable car and you could go across and then you could head up into the, the other side of the, the valley and, and into the communities there. And so this one time, our group of men were coming down after um, visiting with this village and uh, instead of waiting for the long line in order to hop in the cable car and go across, uh, the oldest brother of these two decided that he was gonna try to swim across. I wasn't there that day, uh, but he made it about halfway, and as uh, eyewitnesses described what happened, he then realized he wasn't gonna make it, so he started turning back, and they last saw him going under the water. 
And over the next week, we, we mourned with that family that lost their son. And it was, what came out of that was um, a, a picture of the hopelessness that they have. There is no assurance of faith. For a Muslim, it's really important to have closure and have a body. And because they couldn't find their son's body because it had been swept down river, um, there was no comfort. There was no peace. They were praying. We, we asked them. We tried to gain understanding, like, well, how do you deal with this? And they, they kept on saying, well, we're, we're praying for favor in Allah's eyes that, that, that this son's decisions, the good decisions that he made, outweighed the bad, and therefore he would then spend eternity with Allah. And so there was no assurance at all. And our hearts hurt. We, tried to, we were praying with them. We were meeting with them and having meals with them and trying to encourage them because we were also hurting. He was a good friend of ours. But it, it, it displayed to me and it communicated to me what a huge, uh, the, the huge assurance that we have with Jesus. And which was interesting because uh, we, we kind of had the funeral there in Pakistan. I came back and it was right around the time that Ryan's dad, Ron, passed away. And so within that first week of being back from Pakistan, I attended a, a, worship, you know, a worship service where the life of Ron was celebrated. And so I had these two uniquely very different uh, deaths that happened. And, and one was uh, giving thanks where assurance was there, um, giving praise to God for the life and the service that Ron um, accomplished through his life. And then the other was hopelessness, discouragement, no peace at all. When you talk about Jesus becoming our greatest treasure and us being able to share Jesus from that position, I, I think that this is probably what uh, Paul had in mind when he shares with the church in Corinth um, out of 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15. Let me read this to you. This is always an encouragement to me. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so that's my prayer for you, students of Montana Bible College, that, uh, that you would be a fragrance of, among Christ, or a, a, a fragrance of Christ among those who you are ministering to. And, uh, and that people would be attracted to this Jesus that, that they see and smell and hear out of you. And that would give you open doors to share the hope that you have uh, and the assurance that you have and the joy that you have in Jesus. I've gone two minutes over. Is it okay if I pray for you? And then, uh, like I said, I, I would love to connect with some of you if you have the time. Jesus, we want to celebrate the new life that you have given us. I pray that we would not forget uh, that you loved us when we did not love you. Uh, thank you that you have promised that your grace is sufficient for us today and what you are calling these brothers and sisters to in ministry, uh, long past graduation, long past uh, the, the classes that they'll take here. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient. And Lord, I thank you that you are who you say you are. And because of that, we can uh, be assured that uh, you are faithful and that the work that you have called us to is not in vain, but you will accomplish what you have planned. And so I pray that these 
these uh, brothers and sisters would go out, uh, be able to uh, have great dreams and great visions of ministry and only God-sized prayers that only you can answer and only you can accomplish. I pray that you would use them for your honor and your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.